thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Slowly, the poison the whole bloodstream fills. It is not the effort nor the failure tires. The waste remains, the waste remains and kills. When William Empson wrote his teasing haiku-like poem, The Waste Remains and Kills, he was expressing a sense of spiritual loss in quasi-medical terms. The problem of waste and waste disposal is what we're talking about this week, and although it can be a highly technical subject, as we see, there is a spiritual element to it. Whether we're reading about seas being choked with plastic or just noticing the litter on a local walk, the thought of waste has a corrosive effect on us all, or at least I think it does. Just contemplate for a moment the food waste that occurs in our wealthy societies and the banality of the thinking which leads to it. Here's Catherine Jansen Boyd of Anglia Ruskin University speaking on The Naked Scientists. We are trained as consumers to like the aesthetics of anything we purchase, whether this be food or anything else. And the reality is it's not about taste, but we are now so conditioned into actually believing it has to look a certain way that we won't, like you said, we'll look at an apple and judge, is this really an apple? And that's where food waste often starts because they actually throw away tons of fruit and vegetables because they don't look the part. So if we could change and go back to it's fine to have something that perhaps looks a little wonky it doesn't taste any different then that would be a very good start in terms of reducing food waste my guests this week are dr freya jeffcott a research fellow at queen's college cambridge who specializes in the currently trending subject of infectious disease dynamics including ebola and freya also has a strong interest in global waste disposal policy and ian farnham Professor of Earth Sciences and Nuclear Materials, Fellow at Clare Hall, Cambridge, and Chair of the Cambridge Centre for Nuclear Energy. Now, this is a big and highly technical subject, but could I begin by asking you both what bugs you personally about waste, litter or rubbish in your daily life? Freya? I think it has to be my own egregious behaviour. I I can quite happily do fieldwork and deal with whatever limited food is put in front of me and not think about purchasing anything fun or unnecessary for months at a time. And as soon as I get back home, I'm immediately comparing near identical overpackaged sandwiches um, for the slightest sort of imperfection without any kind of regard for what this means and the consequences. Yeah, I I think I have similar sort of food-related issues. It's, It's really 
things like sell-by dates. Um, I come from a sort of family that likes to think it, it came through the Second World War, used our own judgment on food. And when I think of the amount of food that's wasted, as you mentioned in your introduction, you know, I like to use my own judgment uh, when it comes to, to deciding what is waste. Is it reasonable for us to take responsibility for the waste we produce on a personal or should it be on a national level? Just to sorry expand on that question, I think it's not just a question of personal and national. I think when thinking about this issue, we have to recognise our membership as part of a global elite too, because really the sort of production of waste, the extraction, then the sort of disposal works on this kind of, you know, uh, wealthier parts of the world shifting the costs of it both the production and extraction and the disposal, uh, to the poorer parts. So I think rather than national, we need to think about ourselves as part of this population. And I think part of it is the fact we can displace all of the costs, be they health, be they environmental, be they aesthetic and economic, elsewhere, rather than confronted at home. And so personally, I think part of addressing this is um, stopping that process. It does uh, speak to the idea of nuclear waste, which is not allowed to be exported to different countries. And in fact, uh, you know, it's against IAEA regulations to export nuclear waste to, to a different country. And it came up recently because um, the Gulf uh, Cooperation Council states they're building a, and they're just actually uh, going online, one of the first reactors in uh, the Emirates uh, for uh, Korean designed reactors. But there was a move for those seven countries to have their own uh, a single nuclear waste repository. But the problem was that it would have to have significant treaty changes to transport the waste across the borders to one site which would have the waste. So it's interesting what you're saying, Claire, about that. Um, nuclear waste is maybe, maybe a good citizen in that respect. What does an interconnected management of global waste look like, Freya? Well, so I... I'm wary of potentially um, doing sort of poor global accounting and separating issues. I think that really what addressing this looks like is addressing this sort of larger pattern of um, extraction and disposal, not just of natural resources, but also treating particular people as more disposable and therefore subject to the effects. Because I don't think if we don't address this sort of underlying neoliberalism that doesn't have social costs worked in, then it doesn't really matter what kind of sort of clever structures or policy we come up with. We're inevitably going to lose in the long term as a sort of species and as a planet. Does that speak to you in, I mean, the relevance of social economic factors in terms of nuclear power? Yeah, I mean, one one of the things with nuclear power is that a lot of people, um, you know, speak against the costs, but then... You know, the costs are sort of uh, spread over a much longer uh, period of time. And so, you know, financial investments tend to want returns in 10 to 15 years, whereas you know, nuclear power stations probably going to last about 80 years in this case. And also a lot of the waste is always in- internalized. We, you know, the nuclear industry has always kept its waste on site in most cases, not always in the best condition, but um, trying to, you know, be prepared to dispose of that waste in a sensible way rather than um, other other industries which have been allowed to you know emit their their waste into the environment um, so and in fact it's interesting to note that one, one of the biggest um, sources of, of what we call technologically enhanced radioactive uh, natural radioactive materials comes from the mining of rare earths so this is a big issue in in the sort of you know less developed countries 
that you mine this uh, rare earths and then the residue, the mine spoilage is huge because you only take a small amount of, of the valuable uh, rare earth elements and you leave a huge amount of spoil, which is quite quite radioactive. Well, reasonably radioactive, I'd say. Does Ian's description of the spoilage, Freya, resonate with you? I mean, you've, you've seen spoilage in Africa. Oh, I, I mean, absolutely. I'm, I, I think that when we talk on a previous episode, we discussed sort of post-apocalyptic landscapes and such, and they exist all over the place in what we call the global south, be they the sort of cobalt mines for building phones or the sort of uh, gold mines across Ghana that leave all kinds of nasty, I mean, they destroy the land for generations to come through these processes. I, I mean, it's not just also uh, the extraction of these um, necessary components for technology and such, uh, but then the subsequent dumping again, these e-waste dumps um, in Ghana, they're having like horrendous effects on local health and they enter the food chain in quite a profound way too. So there was an issue with an Italian businessman uh, dumping, I think, something crazy like 4,000 tonnes of sort of toxic waste in Nigeria labelled as fertiliser. And then it managed to get into the local rice crops and 19 people died. Or with this large e-waste dump in Ghana, uh, you find just horrendous levels of uh, dioxides in the eggs sold locally. We've outlined some of the problems caused by toxic waste. Where do we go from here? I mean, Ian, what do you think? The key thing is to take on board the polluter pays principle. And I'm not sure that's always upheld. Um, I think there's more of that coming on board, you know, with more responsible attitudes from governments and, and industry. But it's quite a slow process. But yeah, I mean, it, it should be that the full cost of the environmental cost should be included in the price. And is that happening at all? I, I think that there are certainly uh, efforts. There's like the Basel Convention and uh, other sort of uh, larger attempts to regulate these things, especially around the movement of waste. Uh, but from my personal experience and observation, no. And I mean, the problem is escalating rapidly. I, I, I'm not sure about nuclear waste, but in terms of sort of solid waste and general pollution. So uh, in a World Bank report, uh, it suggested by 2050 that the amount of solid waste being dumped will have increased by 70%, which is something horrendous like... Um, uh, like over 3 billion tonnes a year. So I think, I mean, the problem is obviously outstripping our ability to handle it. Just reminds me, we were watching TV, uh, I think last night or the night before, and the amount of fly tipping that's occurring in the UK because our tips are, are closed uh, because of the virus has increased very dramatically. And uh, the, you know, unless these things are rigorously policed, uh, they'll, they'll happen even in the first world community. And you know, in the third world community, the, the, you know, the incentives and, the, and then the regulation which will control those incentives or remove them is not there. Let's move on to the topic of pandemics and epidemics. Earlier in the conversation, Freya, you talked about how waste got into the soil. What's been its impact and, and, and what influence might it have on society in the future? Well, so certainly, I'd, I mean... Waste dumps and, again, the sort of larger structural inequalities that allow for the conditions of waste dumps are hugely conducive to pandemics, infectious diseases, and, again, these sort of um, non-infectious diseases, these cancers and such that arise from exposure to these kinds of materials. I, I think before getting too attached to the infectious diseases, when we are discussing waste, it's important to note that 
pollution kills more than three times the number of people annually than AIDS, TB and malaria combined. So as much as obviously this is all part and parcel of the same issue, I, I mean, direct exposure to these kinds of materials alone is already a huge cause of morbidity and mortality. I, in terms of looking at this as uh, what it tells us about society and what opportunities it creates, how this might actually allow for a more positive social arrangement, maybe this is an opportunity for the Green New Deal to come about and certain sort of technologies, approaches and policies to take root in this disruption. I mean, I think I've been called a bit of a pessimist on this show before, but uh, at the moment I'm a bit of a hopeful one, but it does seem to be a bit country by country. Well, it's nice to hear you being optimistic, Freya. Ian, do you agree? I, I saw you nodding. I, I was on a, 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 a teleconference, a Zoom type of call uh, earlier today, and it was one of the subjects was, you know, how can nuclear energy um, sort of take advantage of the sort of change in attitudes that Freya has been talking about? I mean, that's the, um, the idea that there's going to be a big investment in low-carbon energy. Um, and, we, you know, we saw the, the price of oil go negative during the... Um, uh, the height of the crisis uh, in in the US, um, and so um, the, the you know the the, the the oil industry may may well not really recover, I guess. Um, but we need to replace oil with something, and that's the that's the key thing. And that the amount of investment is is actually not that huge. If if you look at the um, the idea that what would be needed to be invested um, for to transform the energy economy, we're talking, most people are talking something around six trillion US dollars per year. And we're talking six trillion for a global transformation. So, you know, in terms of just running the numbers, it, it, it could be possible if we, if we can sustain that sort of level of uh, expenditure. But there is, there is a serious public concern about nuclear power. You've given us some amazing figures, Ian, and it would seem to follow naturally, wouldn't it, that we should pay greater attention to we should be investing in nuclear energy much more than we are but we don't i mean there is a fear isn't there it's a fear in the public consciousness why is that what what do you put it down to is it lack of education attempts at education have have largely failed it's really a sort of a wider sort of effort needs to be made by nuclear advocates to to engage with people in, in a different level um it turns out that you know, talking down to them, educating them doesn't work. The positives have to be outlined. So, for example, you could say that, you know, EDF in France use 17 grams of carbon to generate one kilowatt hour of electricity. In the UK, we have a you know, much more green electricity generation, but we use probably between two and 300, I can't remember the exact number, grams of carbon to generate a one kilowatt hour of electricity. We need to reduce the amount of carbon that we use to generate electricity in the first place. And then we need to move on to replace things like transport um, energy and housing energy. And that has the only way that can be done is really to change what we call the vector, which is to introduce something like hydrogen. Or, um, uh, and it probably won't be done with electricity. Uh, just can't really see how we're going to rejig our electricity uh, transmission to get that much energy in a British winter into every home in Britain. So it's going to be something like hydrogen. So how do you produce that hydrogen? That's that's the question. And so there's sort of arguments, people at the Nuclear Energy Agency that I'm talking to are thinking, 
how do you how do you get these arguments across? Um, and again, you know, one of the issues is people always talk about waste for nuclear, but you know, we've been talking about domestic wastes. Um, you know, the amount of domestic waste in the UK is about 120 million uh, cubic meters per year. Is about, about what we generate. So that's for each. So one way of thinking about that is for each household, that's about five cubic meters, roughly. Um, if you think about nuclear waste, there's about 480,000 cubic meters, which has been in the UK, which has been accumulated over the last sort of uh, 50 to 60 years and generated a lot of electricity and um, then, you know, also kept our nation safe. And we've got to admit that we used, uh, we, we, we processed a lot of that uh, waste to or spent fuel to, to make nuclear weapons. Um, so it's kept the nation safe. It's had some utility for that. And it, you're talking something around, for each household, about 200 um, cubic centimetres of nuclear waste, um, which is about the volume of a small glass of water. So, you know, it, it's a good idea to put things in perspective. That the nuclear waste is not a huge uh, volume problem. It, it, it's, a, it's a huge conceptual problem, I think, uh, because of the, the long lifetime of it rather than the actual volume of it. Well, I think we've more than reached the half-life of this podcast. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests this week are Freya Jeffcott and Ian Farnham. And we're talking about waste and waste disposal. The argument for developing nuclear power has been that it replaces our reliance on fossil fuels. Here's Professor Martin Freer, Director of the Birmingham Centre for Nuclear Education and Research, speaking on The Naked Scientists. I believe very strongly that nuclear power is part of the future. I think the government need to look carefully about the economic conditions, the political conditions, to encourage companies. It's a big gamble for companies to invest in nuclear power. One needs to make sure that those conditions are right. So the argument for nuclear power is that it can replace fossil fuels. Freya, would you agree? Yes, but I was also thinking maybe it's not just an issue of people misunderstanding and misconceptualizing the risks with nuclear waste, but massively underestimating or just the costs of the use of fossil fuels at the moment uh, isn't resonating in the way that it really ought to. Uh, the billions the UK spends on health that's a sort of direct consequence of our burning of fossil fuels, just even locally, um, it, it sh shouldn't be acceptable, as should all the premature loss of life. But for some reason, it seems to be normalized, perhaps because it's uh, this kind of more chronic, low-key, miasmic sort of burden on health. Whereas I think when we've thought of sort of nuclear disasters, however rare and limited they've actually been in the grand scheme of things, they have more of these sort of dramatic elements, more of this sort of sensationalism. I mean, I think it was easier to make the sort of program Chernobyl and have good sort of drama and storylines and tension than it would be to be about the sort of slow degradation of sort of fertility and increases in cancers and emphysema rates going up gradually from burning fossil fuels. So, yeah, I think there's two issues to the side of conceptualising relative risk there. But how do we get it across? There is a sense during the COVID-19 pandemic that people are asking big questions. We are considering how to make changes in our lives, the way we live our lives. So how do we make this change, or at least as far as waste is concerned? 
I'm one of those people that really believes in sort of trying to emphasize the sort of district level or the local over the global and really try and get people connected into their local environment and their local policy in these more manageable, accountable, tangible, dynamic ways so that we actually feel empowered to engage with these issues. So we do this in public health. We tend to have a focus on uh, district level autonomy and activities and this sort of moving away from top down and I guess globalism. And I think that maybe the solution lies somewhere in that, in helping communities engage with waste or energy production or um, sort of environmental sustainability. And I think maybe times like pandemics, especially where they have this lockdown uh, in terms of travel and sort of just worrying about family and more conscious effort to look out for the people around you, maybe they do actually provide an opportunity for us to begin to think about what a more local approach to life and production looks like that i think that's about as hopeful as i've ever gotten on this show well you'd be surprised that that there are several um startup companies in in the u.s um which are making what we call micro reactors um and uh, which have an output of something like two megawatts which are for small communities um it's a it's, it's absolutely bizarre but you know in the u.s and canada they have uh you know, remote communities in the north, in, in, in the Arctic, um, where they fly in diesel oil and use generators there. And it's, it's the most, you know, carbon intensive way of powering one of these places. So there's, there's perceived to be quite a market for putting the, the, these micro reactors in, in the remote communities um, where they would provide nearly all the power that they would need. You know, and they wouldn't be very large. I mean, there would be two megawatts or 10 megawatts or something like that. So they're really quite small. And because they're so small or their power output would be so small, you would only refuel them, you know, in, in, in sort of decade or, or um, lengths of time. Or you could remove the reactor completely and put a new one there. So they're, often, they're sometimes called, you know, batteries, U batteries, or uranium batteries, if you like, um, so that they would be... Um, just just a, a power generating source that would be then taken away and replaced at the end of the particular time period and presumably relatively inexpensive that's the aim uh, the the aim of all nuclear research now i mean i i, I it's been dominated uh, since sort of three mile island and, and then chernobyl by safety and if you if you base your designs on safety you will get a very safe uh, system, but it will be very expensive. And now what, what people are doing is trying to look at how you you know, maintain that safety but reduce the costs. And there's been significant work uh, or, or you know, theoretical at the moment work done, but it, it seems that, that, that significant savings could be made on, on the generation of uh, electricity and, and, and other forms of power. I mean, you just need heat. A lot of processes just need heat. And the nuclear reaction can produce a lot of heat very quickly um, and for quite a long time. So that's the um, part of the focus now is, is to really get, get the cost down. And the cost comes down if you start to build these things in factories. So that's why they're going to the smaller reactors, because if you can build them in a factory, um, then you don't get this sort of uh, delays and you don't get the huge mega project financial issues. So every every mega project. So a nuclear power station typically would cost in the in the region of five to to ten billion dollars. Um, so it comes under the 
the range of what we call a mega project. Now we do, you know, we're looking at mega projects like HS2. You know, the cost overruns are absolutely massive, and that's because you can't cost these mega projects until you actually start. Usually, um, you can't do all the full costing work because the costing work itself is very expensive, and so you get massive overruns. So if you're building a large nuclear power station that costs you know ten ten billion dollars. Um, you're going to get cost overruns simply because of the fact that it's a large financial undertaking and you can't really do all the the, the, the design work until you've got full commitment to the project and then the costs just overrun. So there's a lot of financial engineering going on to, to try and get around some of these issues. Well, we're drawing to the end of this podcast, but I can't finish without asking you what you think the landscape might look like in 10 years' time. If there was one development you'd like, just one, in the future, what would it be? Ian? You know, I, I would like to see um, a programme of building smaller reactors taken up in the UK and where, you know, we're, we're using our, our manufacturing skills and we're, we're making our, our economy more dependent on, on actually um, making things rather than um, providing service. Um, and I think I, I don't know what the link is to what Freya has been saying about local localism, but, but I think uh, that there is something to be said for, for, for being more self-sufficient in making more of what you what you produce um, or what you what you consume rather uh, and, and produce it. Um, you know, and this how this fits in with a, a global economy is something that has to be solved. Um, but of course, a lot of the energy that's used is in sort of shipping things around. Um, so that's, uh, you know, I think if we could have our own sources of energy, which were reasonably cheap, it might effectively make producing goods in our country cheaper. Obviously, I'm going to be difficult here. I'm doing my best to sort of think in a positive, hopeful way. But what I would like to see is the adoption of something like the Green New Deal or just a challenge, a recognition of the fact that if we stick with this kind of neoliberal zero accountability to the elite sort of approach to uh, lifestyle and uh, production of waste and disposal of it. I, pandemics like COVID are going to be quite a sort of minor blip in the scale of catastrophe that we're facing in terms of climate change and disease emergence and such and general costs of inequality. So yes, I would like to see 30 years now at a Green New Deal that incorporates non-fossil fuel burning technologies and more of an emphasis on equality and quality of life than necessarily GDP growth and the other things that leave us so susceptible to disasters and wastelands. And perhaps one thing I'd like to add to what you both said is the need for all of us to come face to face with the rubbish, the waste that we produce, the detritus that we leave behind. I mean, we just simply pick it up, put it in the bin and forget about it. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Many thanks to my guests, Freya Jeffcott and Ian Farnham. And thanks to you too for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments, thoughts or reflections of your own, you can email nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. And let us know what subjects you'd like to hear more about and how you'd like us to cover them. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcasts or at nakedscientist.com slash reflections. Do join us next time.
thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.